everybody, and welcome back to The Truth Perspective. My name is Corey Schink, and today is Saturday the 25th. With me today are Harrison Cayley. Hello. And Elon Martin. How are ya? Today we'll be discussing the preeminent neuroscientist Antonio Damasio's book, The Strange Order of Things. Released in February 2018, it's been described as a landmark reflection that spans the biological and social sciences offering a new framework for understanding the fundamental motivation that drives life, feeling, and the creation of human culture. Now, Damasio begins the book by discussing the fact that we humans are born storytellers, and we find it very satisfying to tell stories about how things began. We're pretty good about it when we were discussing our relationships, you know, how our parents met, uh, you know, how we got a job, this and that. But when it comes down to the, the very meaning of life and the foundations of our morality and culture, we get things very wrong, especially when we're talking about the natural world. So what uh, Damasio does is he goes down into the very basic motivations, the foundations that drive all of life, and he finds that what they really come down to is the drive for homeostasis. Now, homeostasis is the pursuit of survival and thriving within the constraints that are put on us by the uh, environment in which we live. He writes that, on the one hand, life specifications that we never had a hand in designing, such as needs, risks, and the exuberant driving forces of pain, pleasure, desire, and reproductive urge hail from ancient times and from non-human ancestors whose intellectual reach was non-existent or limited and who could not comprehend to any substantial degree the situation that they were in. Their fate and that of their species was left to the fortunes of their biological endowment, notably to the genes that construed them and largely governed their behavior. Well, their biological endowment and the needs that they have have become our biological endowment and our needs. So we'll see that much of what we take to be unique facets of human existence are also evident in the communication systems of bacteria, the empires of ants, and even the miniature cities that we call our human cells. And when we make this discovery and the discovery that he shares, the process that he shares in his book, we also find something of a new frontier for understanding what it means to be uniquely human. What does it mean when you all of your drives, your programmed and automatic behaviors are similar to things that you know we take to be lower and um, un, not as evolved as humans? And I think with that, you know, that's kind of the a summation of what he sets out to understand in the book. And um, with that, what do you guys think? Where would you like to go from there? Well, just in general, I want to give, first of all, my overall thoughts on the book. And I guess I'd just say that I enjoyed reading it. But after, well, while reading it, and then after reflecting on reading it and kind of skimming through it again for to prepare for this show, I realized that there were parts that I absolutely loved about this book and that I thought went in like directions that are like almost totally unique, at least within the field that Damasio is a part of, um, and just really insightful and bringing together all kinds of information from all systems of biology and psychology and sociology and, and creating this synthesis that is really quite amazing, I think. But so on the one hand, it, it kind of like reaches up into the, the the ether of 
great thoughts and and thinking, but then it also just plums the depths of like the the stupidest kind of asinine thinking possible when it comes to his, his root explanation for things. And I think that's inevitable for a scholar of uh, of his caliber because all of them are like that. I mean, when it, when in certain areas they're all complete idiots and that just comes with the territory of being um, a, a scholar and being a specialist in a, in a certain area is that you're completely ignorant about um, other, uh, other fields and other ways of thinking. And especially if you're like a, a biologist uh, or a psychologist these days, because it is just so um, infused with scientific materialism that you can't escape it. And with neo-Darwinism mm-hmm. and so there, there are, parts in the book where it's just it's kind of painful to see him floundering for an explanation but on the other hand even in those sections he gets really close to something and that's why i liked the book so much in spite of all of this is that he's kind of he's grasping and he's he's getting really close to what i think is an answer to the the question the questions that he's asking and the, and the answers that he's seeking is that he's 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 almost there and he gets there in so many different places in this book where it's almost like, it's oh, you're almost there, just keep going just a tiny little bit. And he never quite takes that one step. But um, thankfully, we have shows like this where we can push him over the edge and you know <laughs> force this book to, to take the step that uh, you know at least I think it should take. So we'll be getting into that, I think. Um, and... For those of you who have been listening to the show regularly for the past several months, you you might even be able to to predict those answers or that direction that that um, you know that I'd I'd like to go with it. Um, but we will get there. So maybe we'll start somewhere else. Well, um, I thought that I thought it was quite a good book. I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, I was happy to see him go in the directions that he went to towards the end of the book, which we'll get to, and I, I think uh, provide part of what was so unsatisfying uh, for you, Harrison. Um, keeping in mind uh, that, that he is steeped in materialist uh, thinking and that a large part of his focus as a scientist is biology, um, you know, I was able at certain times to say, okay, this is where he's coming from. And you know what? I don't know a lot of these things. And uh, some of those things, the the groundwork that he lays for homeostasis and our, um, the things that human beings have in common with uh, uh, ants and, and, and cells and, uh, and bacteria, as you uh, pointed out at the top of the show, Corey, uh, are remarkable um, and kind of form a foundation for everything else that makes us intrinsically uh, human, at least from the biological sense. Um, so it, it, it is quite a journey. Uh, I look forward to, to filling in some of the gaps as well, especially towards the end, where he, he takes what it is to be human biologically uh, and that this, this homeostatic imperative, as he calls it, this, this need to reach a, a kind of a, um, to, to find those things that would satisfy our, uh, our feelings as, as individuals with perspective and a mind and consciousness, um, it's, it's, it's quite a ride. 
I would say. So looking back just uh, on previous shows, I know that Harrison has discussed a lot about uh, Whitehead's philosophy and how Whitehead viewed uh, nature and kind of the, the structure of nature. So Harrison, I was wondering, could you talk a little bit about the similarities mm -hmm. involved between this book and, you know, philosophy that's come before that is, you know, that really kind of was uh, ahead of its time? Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, that was one of the, th there were th several times in this book, there are, there are several overarching kind of themes that are played out through this book that I thought were like pointing right in the direction of Whitehead. And so I'll talk about a few of them. Um, and these would be like philosophical, like metaphysical um, descriptions of reality that then account for what we talked about last week, um, account for the presuppositions of science, basically. Because there are, there are several presuppositions of science that are like um, just all over what Damasio's doing, um, you know, obviously because he's a scientist. And he, so this is the area where, where I see him um, you know, almost not quite, you know, getting to, to the answer. And, um, well, one of the things that he gets that I was, that I was really glad to see him elucidate was this idea of the, the kind of unified organism. So the way he describes it is that this homeostatic imperative, like, as you put it, Ilan, it, it is rooted in feelings. And those feelings are, are rooted in sensations. So what he means by that is that, um, he would say that organisms without a nervous system sense, like they have a sense of what's going on, they act as if they um, are um, interacting in the world in this kind of meaningful teleological um, goal-oriented manner. Like, and again, last week we talked about this as-if language, so he never gets past the as-if, but basically like cells will act as if they don't like something or as if they like it, as if something feels good or as if something feels bad. And then homeostasis is built on that of the organism seeking out what makes it feel good because what makes it feel good promotes survival and, um, and avoiding the things that make it feel bad because what make it feel bad will kill it and stop the survival of its species. And that that grows, you know, as organisms grow, because um, what are we if not just a collection of smaller organisms, that grows to the point where we have, uh, well, to the point of organisms with nervous systems, where all of these systems interact and cooperate, where they are all acting not only for their own homeostatic survival and flourishing, but for that of the entire organism, and they work together towards that end. And so, of course, he talks about bacteria and um, like colonies of, of social insects, like ants and bees, for instance. But that is going on within our own bodies, too. And he says, um, so first of all, all those things are based on feelings. And then second, the only way that that can all work together, the only way that that cooperation can actually take place is if there is some kind of unifying element where, you know, where everything can communicate with everything else, right? Because the way he puts it, if there were no centralizing um, like information clearinghouse for all this information that unifies it and presents it to um, basically a mind that can have access to all these different feelings from all different parts of the body. If there were no centralized location for that, there would be no way of coordinating all of these varied um, like impulses and drives in the direction of uh, homeostatic survival and thriving. So there needs to be this organic unified whole. And this is 
um, this was just a long way of getting to this first point from Whitehead. One of the central points about Whitehead's philosophy was his description of um, uh, the ontology of organisms, and that what an organism is, is a, a collection of smaller organisms. And as these organisms um, um, are, are kind of put together or informed or organized in such a way um, to create a new organism, that organism then has a unified mind on top of that collection. So he would distinguish, um, and this was developed by one of his students, uh, a theologian named Charles Hartshorn, who came to call this um, like a compound individual. So you have an individual, and an individual would, would be some, like um, everything from an electron, a proton, an atom, a molecule, a, um, a, a bacteria, a cell, an, or, uh, an organ, or, or a human, or a dog, or an elephant. It's something that we identify as its own whole. And again, this is what we were talking about, or we were, um, we were making reference to last show when we were talking about evolution and intelligent design. The, each organism seems to have its own being and its own desires and, uh, and drives and motivations. So each of these would be a whole. And he would distinguish that from um, just a collection, of, uh, a collection of individuals that don't create um, a, uh, don't create a higher organism. So that would be like a, a, just a bunch of rocks or just a single rock, right? You break a, a rock into two pieces and it's just two rocks. Like you haven't destroyed anything essential to the integrity of that rock. Um, but if you take uh, an animal and you cut, cut it in half, you have destroyed that animal. It is no longer a dog or an elephant. It has lost the, the organization which gives it its being. And the essence of that unification of all of those parts is a, a singular mind, or at least a unifying mind that unifies all of these parts. So that's a very important um, like ph philosophical distinction that Whitehead makes in his philosophy in order to account for the way that reality works, and especially in biology, but not just biology, that would, that would go down all the way to physics. And, well, so that's the one thing. And the way Damasio kind of develops that um, was one of the things that I found really remarkable about the book because, first of all, he talks about, as I mentioned, the the absolute like primacy and essential nature of feelings to the phenomenon of consciousness. How we often think, or a lot of people often think, of consciousness as kind of thinking, and then they're thinking and awareness, and then feelings are just like an extra little bit of color that gets put into that consciousness. Well, he argues, no, consciousness is actually rooted in feeling. Feeling's the first thing that comes, and then consciousness is built out of all that feeling. So all of the different parts of our body, all of the different like uh, chemicals going on and, and organs and systems in our body, they are all experiencing something. They're all f feeling or sensing something. And then the nervous system... Um, has branches out into all those areas and takes all of that information and brings it to that central clearinghouse of information and unifies it. And that, that interaction between all these systems of the body is what we think of when we think I am me, right? I have a physical location, in, uh, like a, um, a limited, um, spe specific, identifiable identifiable location in space and that creates me so i like i am aware of my body at this instant where all my like limbs are the space that i occupy and all of the the constant like the constant 
um, feelings that are accompanying that being, that living, con- those are constantly informing that sense of self. And he distinguishes these two systems, an old, like an old network and a new network of feelings. So the old network would be like, this is evolutionary, evolutionarily old. Like the, um, he, he even argues that the enteric nervous system, like the, basically all the neurons surrounding your, your stomach and your digestive system, is like the, the original brain, the first brain. Because it has a lot more in common with the, the, um, the systems in like single cells and organisms leading up to organisms that have nervous systems. It's like the first nervous system was more like a stomach than it, than it was to a brain. And the the way that works, it's like this really kind of diffuse, um, almost nebulous sensation device, right? So if you think about a cell, a cell is is in space, like it's got its own delineated um, um, objective area of space that it, it inhabits, and then it interacts with the world, and it interacts with the world through like these chemical signals, like we were talking about last week. So like a, chem- a chemical signal will come and... And when you look at cells or single-celled organisms, it's like you can see them approaching and avoiding certain objects. Or if there's like a, a prickly little thing that it doesn't like, it'll recoil away from it. And we can see that and we can, we can create stories out of those images, right? It would be easy, really easy to create a cartoon of cells and having, having them interact in ways that we can write a story about. Um, like, you know, approaching something and then you touch it and you don't like it, so you, you recoil and it's like, oh, that cell doesn't like that prickly thing, right? Because he, it hurt him. Um, and so we can, we can like anthropomorphize these cells because they're acting in ways that seem to be purposeful and um, like motivated. And the way, but the way Damasio describes um, how that, how to kind of get your, your mind around what that might be like, he would be, it would be like, it, it has more in common with um, tasting and smelling than it does with um, seeing or hearing. So just imagine, like, just try to imagine that you can only smell and taste, right? So you're you're smelling and you know, like so close your eyes and you're in this environment and you basically follow your nose, right? Try to be a dog, and so you're you're searching for smells that you like and that you know that you remember are good smells because they lead to good things, and you avoid the bad smells. And then when you find something, let's like you taste it and that's good, so you consume that thing that uh, that tastes good, and um, just well that forms the old system, right? There. Various parts in your body that are um, that or, that work in that way, pure chemical signals, and there is even a there are even systems that are directly linked to like the brain that um, that are based on that old unmyelinated unmyelinated infrastructure that is this diffuse um, like uh, system that just bathes in these chemical signals. It's not like it fires a neuron and that then that neuron files fires like a, you know, a digital signal to the brain, like a, almost like programming, right? Like zeros and ones. It's this kind of diffuse bathing in a a chemical signal. And then on top of that, we have the, um, the, the new system, which is like your skeleton and your musculature, which creates in the, or that sends signals to the mind that creates that more highly refined sense of body in space, right? Where now we have an exact uh, an exact representation of the body in space, and so it, so it's it's like as organisms evolve, it's like we have this more refined and more organized and more accessible to consciousness um, image of the self, 
And that when we have more more information like that, more access to the to information and uh, and a more like just just way much way more information and and much more accurate information about the 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 state of your your own organism, what's going on within it, where it is in space, how how it how it feels when it interacts with the outside world, then we have uh, a greater sense of self, right? And that culminates in, as far as we know, in humans and in, the, in human consciousness. And um, all of that works together in just these, this highly refined way where all these systems, like, how does he put it? Like, like there are all these systems running in parallel, one after the other, and even overlapping and intermingling with one another. And, the, and it, it all blends together to create consciousness, which um, it was kind of just really a, a trip to read this book and to be imagined and to just visualize all of this stuff going on and, and just to see how, um, how, how good a description it is that you can read it and you just be like, oh, wow, yeah, that makes sense. It's, it's one of those books that you read and say... Um, Oh, it's like I already—it's like I already knew that, but I just hadn't read it said in such a way before. So that is really the um, good thing about that, that book. But just to to get back to your question, Corey, um, you know that was one long answer to describe one thing. But to get back to just one, probably what you were intending when you asked that question—correct me if I'm wrong—about Whitehead's philosophy. That's just one instance or one aspect of it, but the overall aspect that this is pointing to is this um, panpsychism, or as Whitehead, I, well, I think Whitehead might, I don't think he termed it this way, it was his, his students that eventually called it this, uh, panexperientialism. Everything, ex everything has experience. Mm -hmm. So this is, really, this is really what I think is the kind of revolutionary aspect of this book. Because for years, what has been happening in like philosophy and biology is that the, the line has been, has been moving back um, down, the, or, down the, like, the, the biologic, uh, biological evolutionary tree of life for where we find consciousness or experience, right? Because 200 years ago, there were scientists that thought only humans had experience and, and animals didn't. That's why Descartes could perform a vivisection on live animals because he thought that they were just machines that couldn't feel anything. But slowly that has been moving down, 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 down. And Damasio gets to the point where he just says, well, everything with a nervous system <clears throat> has some level of experience, some level of feeling. And, um, but that, that's where he has the cutoff point, right? Um, he, he says sensation as cells and other organisms that don't have a nervous system, um, he says that those, those organisms only sense things and there is no mind in that sensation. It is only as if it has some kind of feeling or subjective experience. So that's where he draws the line. Now, so he did a great job pushing the line that far. What Whitehead would say was that no, for a, for a, a, for a coherent, like non-contradictory accounting of the facts of experience of, as we know it and, and to explain science and to account for science as we know it, we have to let experience go all the way down. Experience has to be a fundamental aspect of reality to the point where even electrons will have some very primitive form of experience. Like it, it would be, what does it feel to be an electron? Well, it would just like, just an iota of experience, right? A, a very limited number of experiences, maybe even one, like what, a, like protons, 
you know, I'm not a, a physicist or a, you know, a chemist, but um, from what I've read, I think it's protons that basically never die. Like they're always around and they're always doing the same thing. They never change. It's like that. So what would be the experience of being a proton? It's just the same thing for eternity. Like for as long, for as long as you, you exist, right? You don't experience very much at all. That's very limited experience. But as as new elements form as, and as new atoms come together, new experiences develop. And um, and then what, what happens when we have life, right? What, what happens when life gets introduced into the, the cosmos? Um, what new kinds of experience come out of that? Well, this is where Damasio goes, you know, pretty much full neo-Darwinian, he just says, oh, and then um, experience um, evolved because of natural selection and mm -hmm. because it was beneficial for experience to come. And then it's, it's, it's just like, whoa, hold on, wait a second there. It's like, mm -hmm. so this grand, like, the creation of the emergence of consciousness just came about because it was advantageous that creatures would have consciousness. It was like, it's I, like, I want to interject. Yeah, on go that ahead. Because, I'm done. Because, well, I, I'd, I'd like you to continue if you, if you have more on that. But, um, in fact, I thought that the book, uh, almost argues against some of his points of view Yeah, exactly. because it's such a, um, I mean, when you're reading this, you're thinking, wow, uh, you have levels of, um, of feeling and, and, uh, like that nervous system is, is girded on top of this kind of um, very primitive um, feeling state mm -hmm. uh, and functionality. And what, when, as he describes the, the human being, one of the most wonderful descriptions I've ever read, uh, you can't help but ask yourself, um, or, or at least exclaim, we're freaking miracles. Yeah. How, how is it that uh, just purely through evolutionary uh, explanations, uh, which, are, which are even more dissatisfying after reading this, we have come to be th this incredibly uh, complex um, being that's got all of these systems working in conjunction with one another, uh, that, that's, got, that's developed feeling to a level of, uh, and consciousness to, to a level that, um, that's almost alien. Uh, next to uh, the descriptions of, of single-celled beings and, and how they function. Um, so that gave a lot of food for thought. Um, so like one of his, co one of his concepts uh, that, that you were alluding to, Harrison, was, um, was the ability for human beings to imagine certain things, mm -hmm. uh, which, which make us distinct from animals in the sense that uh, we have such a, because of our developed minds and consciousness and our ability to feel through certain things, uh, we can describe certain things to ourselves, including those feelings, associate them to certain things that are either internal to us or external to us. Um, and it's, it's through those descriptions that we have taken uh, this homeostatic imperative, things that we feel we need or want in order to balance our life, to make things healthier, to make things more constructive. Um, it's all of these constructions via awareness and, and imagery and the ability to uh, describe things and name them through language, uh, through our mental processes, uh, that, that has taken this, this whole thing as he describes it to the next level. Um, and uh, 
think that may be a good place to continue on in that direction if, if we want to. Well, just really shortly, I'll mention one other critical thing that you included in there that has vast philosophical implications is the, just the idea of value. Because what the, what the emergence of homeostasis is, is the emergence of a sense of sensed value. Or I wouldn't even say that. It's, a, it's the emergence of a new level of sensed value. Um, and that's another thing that Damasio can't account for. Um, and this, this comes back, it's the same problem that we got into with Peterson and Harris's debate on the, the existence, um, objectivity, and emergence of value in reality. How can we account for values? So, so this is a big hole and a big question that this book still leaves open. He tries to give an explanation for it, but he can't. It's a totally unsatisfying answer that he gives for where, where value comes from, where the experience of value comes from. Well, ironically, he calls it, I, I think, sub subjectivity. Well, well, yeah, he does. But there, there's, um, it, that would be, it's kind of ironic in a sense just because of, just because there's two definitions of subjectivity, right? Because right? he's using it in the, in, the in the philosophical sense as being a subject, right? Because we are all subjects and we only experience the, the, the universe subjectively as subjects. So there are objects and subjects. So uh, a subject being an, an agent or a conscious or an experiential like being experiences a world of objects. Now, but in the more like epistemological kind of journalistic sense, of right. course, then you know you you can be objective about your your perspective and the things that you're describing, or subjective being like biased and um, you know not um, not matching with reality, basically. So he's using the word in a different sense, but but yeah, um, but he can, but he doesn't have an answer for where value comes from, and that is it. It, it is really a remarkable thing because from these first first organisms that can only sense, as you know, Damasio puts it, um, he, he says, well, they're acting as if they like or dislike something, but they don't have any minds in order to be able to actually like or dislike something. They're just acting as if they, they do because it, it's evolutionarily advantageous, which is like, that, that's why I use the, the, the word asinine at the beginning, because it's just a totally stupid explanation. Like, there's nothing to it. It's just, it's just words. Words that, uh, that evolutionary biologists think have meaning, but that actually don't. It's like, no, that is the first, the first instance of value. It's like, what is it? How is it that an organism, like that first organism, like, well, first of all, why would they even need to, why would the universe even need to have uh, a sense of value, like liking or disliking, or one thing being better than the other. I mean, the 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 universe was go getting along just fine without any creatures, just with you know planets, you know, and comets, you know, flying through the through the vast reaches of space. It's like you didn't need any sense of value. Like the 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 physical universe was getting along just fine, but all of a sudden, out of nowhere, these creatures come, you know, spring into existence. That somehow now one thing is better than the other. Oh, this state of being feels better than the other one. Not only does it feel better, it is better in, in the context of certain goals and certain future states. So what these organisms are actually doing is that they are, they are feeling objective reality. They're feeling the, like, so they've, they've acquired the sense, the ability to sense a wider, um, a, a wider, more expansive, version of reality, a new aspect of reality now. So now they're not just experiencing like, you know, 
um, interstellar collisions of of raw matter. Now it's like the the me the the form that makes me is well. First of all, it is a form. It can take different futures. There are different possibilities open to it. Some of those possibilities are objectively better to me than others. Survival is better than death and extinction. Now, objectively, you know, for just looking at, from the, looking at it from the perspective of physics and chemistry, there's no difference. It doesn't matter one way or the other if you live or die. It's just collections of matter. It's just one configuration of matter compared to another configuration of matter. One might look like this, the other looks like that. There's no essential difference. It's just collections of matter. But when you have this organized organism, that's why it's called an organism, that, is, that has a specific shape, a specific form of, like a specific configuration of information, that matter is put together in a specific way, it actually creates something new in the cosmos, something that wasn't present before. And to that organism, it has its own, well, the first... Um, the first experience it has, the first sense of value it, that it has, is the sense of its own value. So we have a new value that has come into creation. We have the emergence of a new form of value. And so, what, so evolution and survival, it is this kind of organized, um, organized path through time and through history that, that is... Um, directed, well, it, it goes in the direction of preserving that value, but not only preserving that value um, in the homeostatic sense, but like, we, like one of you mentioned earlier, not just survival, but thriving, but flourishing. So the, the emergence of even new sets of value. So there's this grand like, like mystery that is just like beautiful within all of this, all of these life forms, within life itself, that is pointing in the direction of something, but, but for Damasio, it's like, oh, it was just evolutionarily great. Now, of course, he can, he can recognize and appreciate the, the, um, the endpoints, the goals that have come about because of this, like in culture and philosophy and art and all of these, all of these things, but it's just, it really kind of, um, um, it really sullies the <laughs> sullies the 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 picture when he gives the evolutionary explanation that's it well i think one of the the major contributions that this book makes and why it's been so well received is that he really takes uh he takes the the darkness you know and he just shines oh like just a, the headlights right into it he maps he extends our cognitive map of history you know from humanity and all the way back to the very foundations in a way that you can relate you know and it's and it's it's because it's it's the relatability which makes it so poignant and so fascinating that he's like you know bacteria communicate they get together they wage wars against one another if one of their family members betrays their clan that family member gets excommunicated mm -hmm. and then you go up to you know all the way up to the evolution of the nervous system and you know the and the evolution of humanity and you see that like the very same principles that they were operating on are what we still operate on and we have to operate on and we have to we have to take them seriously mm -hmm. because you see that this this giant chain of of being has we've all had to follow the same rules and it's mm -hmm. it's like you know it's like seeing ancestors it's like it's just something there's something about it you get this sense of 
this giant family of life almost, even though that family is so dysfunctional, it's always trying to kill its, <laughs> kill one another. And that you're part of it. Like, mm-hmm. you're, you're part of this story. Yeah. And it's, you're in an integral part of this grand narrative mm-hmm. that has been playing itself out for billions of years. And that's why I also think why you, it's so, uh, you know, discomforting, like you said, it sullies it when it's, when you get down to the origins, you get to the Genesis story, and it's like, and God's not there. Or there's, and who's, who's there? Who's it, nah, it just uh, some nothing? Somebody tripped, yeah, <laughs> knocked over something, you know. But co- the cosmic accident, yeah, the cosmic, the cosmic stubbing accident of the toe. happened. But um, yeah, I think that that's uh, I think that's the that's a, one of the biggest contributions of this book um, is just that extending that cognitive map because as we had uh, discussed in previous shows, like in the idea of history and uh, the philosopher Collingwood and his. You know his idea of the development of the of the human mind through various uh, historical phases. You know, one of them being a focus on art and beauty as being the you know the fundamental aspects of truth and how we just how emotional that is. And then the the idea that religion is you know just by stating my imagination, my emotions. You know, God is this, or you know, I'm just you can make up whatever imaginative story you have about nature, and then insist that it's true because you imagine. It. And since you have this internal representation and everybody gets around and does their rituals about it, that reinforces its quote-unquote truth because it's relevant and it's practical. It keeps people together, keeps the tribe together, keeps everybody in the right place. Well, then, you know, that, can only, that only goes on for so long. And then you get this scientific mindset, which is looking more into what is actually going on. You know, the scientific point of view is now let's, let's come up with these theories that replace, you know, the imagination. And then, you know, we can investigate things and we can see what's really going on. And we don't need the imagination. We don't need subjectivity. We don't need any of that. That's all, that's all silliness. But then, um, that through just just by doing that, the you you get to see, you know, after you know centuries, you get to see what's actually going on. You see, you know, and that's where this book really. I feel like that's where this book really really comes out, and it stands almost, in a sense, kind of as a breakthrough. I think for a lot of people is that now you see that from like, like a scientific. Uh, philosophical, religious kind of look at history in a sense that it's still abstract, it still has these like scientific uh, suppositions that we've talked about in previous uh, shows, but it's still a step forward uh, to a narrative, a coherent narrative Mm -hmm. that people need, you know, and that's what, you know, so many people, you're, when you don't have a narrative, a functional narrative, life is just a series of events that happen, just Mm -hmm. like we, you know, accidents, whatever, this happened, that happened, you know, who cares, we're here, you know, let's live, party, and he discusses that in the book about the fact that the image is the basic unit of mm-hmm. the human mind. He discusses that fact. Mm-hmm. And then when you string images together, it creates a narrative. And it seems like we are biologically programmed that we need these images to be strung together in order for us to be you know, strung together, organized, mm-hmm. uh, and to make sense. In order to make sense of the world, we have to take our images, internal images, internal thoughts and feelings, and, and then to string them together coherently into something that has an orientation in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, orientate. You know, you can have knowledge, you can have learning, and you can have all these things, but that doesn't, still doesn't uh, equal an orientation. You know, and that's, and I think, you know, like the orientation of this book, it's, um, 
you know, it's, it still has all these scientific presuppositions, but it's still pointing towards a deeper meaning, like a deeper, yes. more appreciation of life. Mm-hmm. It's a virtue of the book, yeah. Corey. I think that uh, towards the last part of it, he, he is asking the question about, uh, about civilization now. He's saying, okay, so, so this, is, this is what we're made of. This is where we've come from. This is, what, uh, this is how we're constructed. What is our homeostatic imperative now? And, and given, uh, given the fact that we have access to all of this information, which is a miracle for people with critical thinking, a, a, a wonderful benefit, and yet you have a whole other part of the population that is floundering and, and to whom it's detrimental to have all of this information, all of these narratives, all of these images that are overwhelming people, that are being uh, designed to uh, steer them in the wrong direction and thinking on things that, uh, that don't support homeostasis, that don't support uh, constructive living. And so, um, and he talks about a, a, whole, a whole range of things as well. I mean, uh, he discusses AI and, and those developments and, and the idea of transhumanism um, being devoid of feeling and, and how those things are, are counteractive as well to the well-being of, of society and human beings. Um, but I think, he, I think what he's trying to do to, to the best of his ability in any case, like you said, is, is point in a direction uh, to affirm the values uh, of altruism that, um, you know, not, with a, not without a certain amount of discernment, of course, um, and critical thinking, uh, but he's saying that, that these are things we, we have yet to achieve a level of cooperation in spite of all the information that we have access to that is going to sustain us. So he offers, he offers hope, but he, he's also, I think, uh, a little bit cynical uh, and understandably so about where we're, where we're going as human beings. Well, I wanted to comment on something both of you, well, a different thing that each of you said. I'll start with you, Ilan, the you you introduced the idea of culture. So this is one of this is another one of the kind of revolutionary aspects of this book, is that he Damasio um, gives a description of culture in terms of feelings and homeostasis. Again, it's not that culture and all of these human cognitive creations um, and social creations are these kind of um, sterile mental cre- mental creations like they just come out of this kind of um, robotic mind that they are also rooted in feeling that culture is the this the expression of the search for for collective homeostasis so all of the all of the innovations that we have all of the cultural techniques that we have developed over our entire evolutionary history all of the social rituals and um, interactions that we have developed over time are all um, in the service of homeostasis. And that means they're all in the service of feelings, that feelings are the inspiration for all of them. So what is technological innovation if not just, okay, I've got a problem and something is pulling me in that direction, right? Something, something's pulling me in a certain direction. Um, I've got a problem to solve. I want to solve that problem. This state of affairs isn't quite good enough for me, but I can do something to make myself feel better, and it won't, it won't just make me feel better, it'll, it'll make other people feel better too if I solve this problem. 
And then these problems are solved, and that re results in an invention, an innovation, something new that makes people, on the whole, feel better. And we can we can give this one to Sam Harris, right? It is uh, an increase in well-being for like individually and collectively, and so that all of human history is kind of this long development of this um, this flourishing within the homeostatic limits of humanity. And as cultures develop, what you know what what they are is just, are the, just these grand systems to promote and and flourish within this this homeostasis. And so that that um, putting it in terms like that is is really interesting. And this also comes back to Collingwood as well. Like I recently read another one of his books, uh, Prin The Principles of Art, where he's discussing. Um, um, well, the art part isn't really relevant to this discussion, but it, within like the second part of that book, he has a he, he goes through a, a bunch of different um, aspects of experience of human experience to then come up with a theory of art. And one of those is language. And so he has this really intricate analysis of what language is. And the conclusion he comes to is basically the same as Damasio, that, that language is the expression of feeling. And that language isn't just words that we say. And in fact, that, just to say that it's a, a bunch of words is actually not to do language justice. Because language is a full mode of expression. And it's the expression of feelings. So when we develop a language, well, what are we actually developing? Well, it's images, like you mentioned. Um, for, like, uh, everything is images in consciousness. And so when we have a word for something, it's like we form words through associations as we grow. So it's like, oh, like dog, dog, dog. So that word dog, that sound, the, not only the sound, but the, the, the way that the, the, the mother, you, you know, for a child, says it. And the 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 expression on her face, her um, the form of her body, the the expression of her body, the the um, the movements that it makes, and the, the the posture that she takes, all of that contributes to this to this idea or this um, this association of dog, and of course the dog itself. And then when we look at the dog, we see all the things about the dog that that make the association for for dog. And at first, um, the associations are wide, like. Uh, a, a little child first learning to speak might see a raccoon and say, "Oh, doggy, doggy!" Right? It's not a, no, it's not a dog, but uh, close enough, right? But what? So all of these words that we form are first of all their experiences, but what? But um, the, well, they're representations of experiences. But what are those experiences? Well, they're all rooted. They're rooted in all those things in the the sensory perceptions that we have of things. So the 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 images that or, well, just the information that enters our uh, usually, like um, primarily, our auditory and and visual systems. That then, w and whenever we have uh, uh, an auditory or visual visual stim stimulus, as Damasio points out, it then evokes a feeling in the which is felt in the body, and then everything gets meshed together. So that would be like the the um, the sensation of your body in that instant, and all of the sensations within your body. So the the, the the configuration of your body in space, like when you're sitting or standing, and then all of the little feelings that that um, infuse, like the your viscera, the in, the insides of your body, and all of that goes together, what, like just to form a simple word. Like a word is not just a word; it is a, a full um, a full bodily experience, and every word is. And so, a string of words is not just a string of words; it is all of the feelings that are evoked in your body, all of the memories 
that are evoked for each individual word and all the combinations of words and basically just the string of words and the person you're communicating with or the thing that you're seeing, all of every aspect of what you're seeing. So again, their facial expressions, the their carriage, you know, the, the posture, the the movements of, of of their body and the different parts of their body. Every aspect of what you're seeing will create changes in your own body, and those those changes are then felt, and all those changes are then linked to memory because they repeat. And well, there's probably a a very active part that the the mind plays in categorizing and organizing all of these things and linking them together in memory to form these categories. And, and then we are, well, so, so um, the connection is between Collingwood's idea of language at, or language as the expression of feelings and then um, Damasio's explanation of pretty much every human endeavor in terms of images and then images that are rooted in feelings. So we have this complete picture, like bottom-up, that takes, takes into account all these aspects of human experience <clears throat> from like the, the most simple bodily sensations up through more, um, more refined and specified feelings and drives and motivations to the, the images that then get um, presented to consciousness and formed through consciousness, formed in consciousness through all of these processes that then give us um, all of the, the ideas that we have, the, the images in our minds. And that then what that does is um, th because, because we are the most organized and complex creatures, we then have the most access to information, we have the most information input, and also the most like information processing capability. So that's what that's what um, what you guys were talking about earlier uh, um, about like the expansion of human consciousness and how much it can encapsulate and what that is 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 basically we have more access to memories um, we have a more refined sense of memory and more access to the future. Yes. And so not only well I'll go with memory first so looking back in time not only do we have memories but we have we can even imagine things in a different way not in the sense of, of diluting ourselves, but the future as it could have, or the, the past as it could have happened. So we can look back in the past and say, okay, this happened, but this could have happened. If this had, if this had happened instead, we could have gotten this, and then that would have led to a different now. And that say, that a similar kind of process can get put into the future, so now we have access to even more of the future. Um, like uh, a string of, you know, a, a cell might have uh, well, a cell does have an ability to project into the future in some ways. All organisms do because they, they act in goal-directed manners. But we have more access to the future, and we can play around with those ideas um, to a, a vastly greater degree. We can manipulate those ideas within our minds. And, and when we think about that in terms of the future, what we are doing is projecting into the future various potential futures. And then... Um, playing around with the ideas. So not only what could have happened in the past, but what could happen in the future. Well, this will lead in that direction, this will lead in that direction. And then, again, coming back to the homeostasis, which is the experience of value, and then adding in the freedom that uh, the human mind has, this is the, the choosing of certain values over others. Um, the experience of the value, the, the realization that it is, um, that there is something about it that 
that you feel you need to manifest in the world, like this would be better if I could do this or if I could manifest this future. And then the ability to direct yourself and direct your organism in the direction of that value to instantiate it into the world. Right, and that's all motivated by by feeling. Like the mm -hmm. the feelings are the ones that are driving this, right. because that's you know that's how buildings, you know, empires are built. That's how you know why you have children, why you feed them and clothe them. And but at the same time, it's not it's not just feeling. Mm -hmm. What you're saying is that there's a lot more to it than feeling. Feeling is one of the, the is the foundation. But you know, if you you think about uh, you know you go to a restaurant and. Um, you see, uh, you know, your your best friend's uh, wife with somebody else. You know, they're sitting there, um, you know, and, and it's obviously that the, it's a romantic situation. You know, there a lot of people will have completely different feelings about that. There's there are different psychologies out there that would feel differently about that. If you think of someone who is has a you know a proper moral upbringing, somebody who we would say was like a normal person, they would feel, you know, disgust. They would feel. Um, they would feel betrayed. They would feel, you know, they would feel angry. They would think, I have to, and, their mo and those feelings would motivate them to go do something, um, tell, you know, tell the husband or, or whatever. But then, you know, you think about somebody who's not oriented in that way. Maybe not necessarily, you know, not, they're not a psychopath. They're not a murderer, but they're just, um, you know, their feeling is, oh, you know what, I could probably take advantage of that, of her, uh, her character flaws. You know, or the, you know, there's there's Black so many male. exactly. There's uh, you know, feeling as he describes it is fairly fairly flat. Um, you know, it's it's fairly one dimensional in the sense that you know, I mean, he he does discuss the difference between sensations and you know, my more higher emotions. But when you look at psychologies and you know, just the orientation of a person in the world, there are plenty of people out there who, you know, the feeling it does not um, always match up to the situation, you know, if I mm. what I'm saying. Well, that reminded me of one other criticism. Well, it's not, a, it's not even a criticism that I had of the book, just an observation that this whole description of homeostasis and of just the human organism and the way, like the different levels of sensation, well, it just, well, just as an like offhand remark, it reminded, it really reminded me of the way Gurdjieff describes the, the human organism with its different, its different systems like uh, sensation, feeling, and thinking, the different uh, centers or brains. Um, so there's a lot of food for thought there if you're familiar with the, with Gurdjieff's writings. But um, one of the things about looking in, at the world in terms of homeostasis is that it doesn't quite reach the level of multi-levelness. So this is a reference to Dabrowski, who we talked about a couple weeks ago. Um, it is really a description of biology and then society like rooted in biology. These would be factors one and two in Dabrowski's system. So, and wh so while that can achieve a lot, um, and it's you know, vastly important, those two things are vastly important, there's still something missing. But that's something missing, I'd say, is the next level of value. So we had the level of value of physics and chemistry, and out of that, there was the emergence of a new value in the form of life. And then from, from life and, uh, and the, inter in, the interactions of life forms and of, of societies of life forms, we have like humanity. And we st but humanity is still um, created out of chemistry and 
uh, lower life forms. So we're like we're built on top of that. We still have those those values within us, and those values are still important for us. But we ha- but we now with you know our, our more expanded minds have access to a new realm of value and create can create new value. Well, create new values and experience and and manifest new values on top of that. So the the homeostasis is is very important, like for individuals and societies, even just for their survival. So without the without homeostasis, we would not survive. But we have survived, and it has been been because of that homeostatic imperative and the the feelings that we the, we feel, and basically like it's basically pushing and pulling us um, in the direction of survival. And that's been the, the the history of life in general has been just I mean just survive. It's like you described last week, Corey, when you're looking at you know when you're thinking about like the cell and early organisms, and it's just been this life or death struggle with no room for anything else. And it's like, well, we've got a f- humanity has a foundation that's pretty good of survival. I mean, we're still here. We've been here for not like I mean, the time that we've been on this on this planet has has been just like a you know a microsecond compared to the, how long life has been here. But we're still here. We're pretty good at surviving at least. But what are the things that we're not doing quite right? What could we be doing better? Those are the questions that would bring into in in the third factor, basically, and that's where the individual comes into play, and what the like the 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 character that the individual can create for his or herself, and and that means that there are going to be some things that will be seen as higher and lower within that homeostatic framework. So something that just from the level of the animal would be a good thing for homeostasis. Um, which could just be like an, a chance encounter in the wild where it's like, okay, it's going to be you or me, buddy, right? And then one of, one of those animals dies. And it could, not, it, could even, it could be for food. It could just be uh, aggression and fear playing into it. But that does not translate well into the human sphere. Now, it can and it has, and it does continue to do so. But that's where we, where basically morality enters the picture, where there will be some things where it's like, okay, even though that is a good thing according to the law of the jungle and natural selection, it's not a good thing in terms of something higher, in terms of that higher value. And that really has been the, the history of morality is to, is to for, for humans to figure that stuff out, to say, um, you know, okay, well, what is the right answer? And to find out that emotions aren't everything, mm-hmm. you know, that the that drive for homeostasis, you know, to feel good. Um, it's like we discussed on the radio show about Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson, that one of the problems with the whole, um, the idea of uh, homeostasis is that it's based on surviving and thriving. But as, humani- as humans, we don't know what thriving really means, mm-hmm. but we're programmed to know what it means, and it, and it just means feeling good. So, I mean, but that, when you look at that with the amount of information that we can process, the amount of complexity and, and you know, the amount of order and discipline that it takes in order to, to do things, it's like one of the fundamental aspects of, of human life is to, is to uh, refrain from just seeking mm-hmm. pleasure, to, from mm-hmm. just feeling good. 
And then, that in fact, feeling bad and feeling horrible is not always a sign that you're completely in the wrong. Right. It, it can it mean can you're, be doing, good. you're doing the right thing. It can mean you're doing, yeah, exactly. It can mean that you're evolving as a person, that you're, mm-hmm. you know, you're striving. And that thriving doesn't mean, you know, like, you know, I'm sitting there and I've got so many cheeseburgers. I'll be, you know, I've, I just went to McDonald's. I'm thriving now. Right. You know? <laughs> but there is, so, so this is what I was, what I was getting at, trying to get at with, you know, my previous description on basically levels nested within other levels. So like there is, so like that feeling good is good in certain situations, like especially when it's just like when it comes to your basic survival, whether you're healthy or not, whether you're going to live another year or not in order to get more things done, right? It's good to, that your body feels good. If it's not, there's something wrong with your body and you might, you know, you might be diseased and you might be falling apart. And that would be bad in in terms of that, right? But there, but that will be nested within a a, a bigger level, and that's where uh, I, I think Jordan Peterson's description is so good, where he says, "Well, no, well-being isn't the thing. Like f- feeling good isn't the good th- isn't the you know the meaning of life. The 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 thing that is important in life is meaning and taking on responsibility, not feeling good, because you can f- like people can feel good doing horrible things." So that can't be the answer. The, like, the answer is when you take on responsibility and you're doing something right. Now you may not have an like a, a really clear picture of the direction that you're heading, but that sense of feel of uh, that sense of meaning and that taking on of responsibility is inherently what it means to be go or what it feels like, what the experience is of going in that right direction. Mm-hmm. And so what that suggests, to me at least, is that the universe is structured in such a way that we have. Um, that we respond and we can, that we, exp- that we have an experience of what it's like to be moving in the right direction. So that there is something objectively true about like the, the, the directions that we should be heading and that we actually have a feedback mechanism through which we can recognize that. And that is the sense of meaning that comes from taking on responsibility. So from that, we can create a picture of what the, what the future is that we should be heading towards. And th- there will be an element of homeostasis and an element of feeling, but like you said, then this is the stoic thing. It's like f- when it comes down to it in, in that direction, feelings don't matter in a lot of situations. And in fact, what the, what the right thing will be to do is to go against your feelings mm-hmm. because you can be um, like socially programmed in a sense to, to like a certain thing, to want a certain thing, but that will be wrong. This com- uh, Dabrowski called it um, uh, positive and negative. Um, what was the word he used? Um, oh, I can't remember it. But basically, how you um, uh, how you are kind of tied to the world. Oh, I can't think of a good word for it. Um, adjustment. That's what it is. Mm. Positive or negative adjustment. So, like a uh, a negative adjustment would be when you are adjusted to the world, basically you're in alignment with the world, but the world is going in the wrong, in the wrong direction. So it's like, so that would be the typical example would be like in Nazi Germany, right? You're going along with the crowd, you're adjusted to society, and that has been traditionally a description of, or, or a definition of mental health, is how well you are adjusted to society. Well, what happens when the society that you're adjusted to is wrong? Well, that's a negative adjustment. Mm-hmm. In that situation, it is morally correct to be to, to not be adjusted to your society. Um, so that it would be a positive thing to not be adjusted. Positive maladjustment is what he'd call that. So there, so with, 
uh, with the expansion of human consciousness comes these extra responsibilities and extra complexities of life, where things are not so simple. Now, um, I wanted to read one paragraph from his book where he's talking, this is in the context of cultures and, the, and how homeostasis influences cultures. Now, I think this one gives, uh, gives an example of a case where, where clearly there is a disconnect between culture and homeostasis, uh, a negative disconnect. Um, well, I'll just read it. So, certain cultural instruments can actually worsen homeostatic regulation or even be the primary cause of dysregulation. One obvious example comes from the adoption of systems of political and economic governance that were originally meant to respond constructively to extensive social suffering, but ended up producing human catastrophes. Communism, for example, accomplished precisely that. The homeostatic goal of the invention, the homeostatic goal of the invention is undeniable and conforms to the hypothesis I have advanced. The results immediately and in the long run, or something else, producing in some cases greater poverty and violent death than the world wars that flanked the dissemination of these systems. This is a paradoxical case in which rejection of injustice, a process theoretically favorable to homeostasis, leads unintentionally to more injustice and homeostatic decline. But nothing in the general hypothesis speaks to the guaranteed success of homeostatic inspiration, Success depends on how well-conceived the cultural response is in the first place, on the circumstances to which it applies, and on the features of the actual implementation. So here, here's this vision. Um, basically, what, what should be, this is kind of the goal that should be held in mind for individuals who are the creators of culture, essentially, because uh, individuals collectively create culture, is that if we think about it in term, in like these new terms, in terms of homeostasis, we can hopefully avoid um, avoid like situations like communism um, and avoid the catastrophes. Not necessarily because we can deceive ourselves, just like the communists did, because that's what they thought they were doing. That's the, what their goal was, right? But with enough, you know, with enough knowledge, let's just say theoretically that we can produce that. Um, produce a better society, not a perfect one, but one that takes these things more into account. This would be Harris's ideal vision of the future, of the, the, the society founded on well-being. So then this comes back to why this is still a limited picture, because say we've got a pretty good society. Um, you can have a pretty good society in that direction, but it still resembles like, um, like an insect colony, right? Um, a good society. It functions. It works, right? So, but what's missing from that, that, that again, would be Dabrowski's third factor. This would be the individual development of, of the, the members of that society. And that, cannot, that is not a social process. Now, it can be, it can be helped along by social factors, um, by education and by mentorship, but what, it always comes down to being an individual process where you have to like you have to take on your responsibility. You have you are responsible for the development of your own character and your own mind, and um, it is an, an internal experience. And even even that is a another example of well, that is the the way in which the like new human values are manifested. That is the way in which like the the human future will be manifested is th through individuals having access to or or. Um, coming into coming into connection with and communion with 
that higher value and then bringing it into the world through their actions, through their speech, through their physical actions, through their interactions with the world in, in which we live. And that is the only way that anything will happen. Um, like creating a perfect society will not create, um, will not create better individ individuals. It will create a, like a, a fertile ground in which to, to grow individuals, but it still comes down to the individual to take on that responsibility and actually put it into practice. And um, that's just another way of saying that there's no one that's going to save you. Like no one is going to save humanity and no one is going to save you personally. That is a, that's on you. Other people will help or, and other people should help and you should help other people. But what it comes down to is it is always your responsibility and, and, and it will be through your own actions and your own, like, I mean, how to like summarize the, the totality of like the, the inner human experience, like, um, to get this across, it, it's it's just up to you and everything that goes on in, within your mind. Every conflict between yes and no, between higher and lower, between better and worse, in every situation of every day, in every direction, in every possibility for the future, it is up to you to make that determination based on your values and the, the developmental the development of your hierarchy of values over time to then have that system, have that like forged character that when you are confronted with a new situation, you then choose, oh, you can recognize the, the proper course of action. It's like, okay, no, I'm not going to do that. And no one can make me do that. Mm -hmm. Like, you're not going to make me do that. Um, there's just no way. I'd rather die <laughs> than, than have you like, force me to, to do that. It, it, it really, that, that is what a moral character comes down to, is, is just of like forged out of iron um, or something stronger, an adamantine mm -hmm. will. Mm -hmm. and, that, and, to, and so that requires being able to see, being able to see into the future, seeing potential futures and then choosing it and then the ability to put that into action. Right. And that's faith then too, isn't it? It's mm -hmm. a, something that gets lost in the, you know, that's been lost, that yeah. idea of faith as something, as, a, as an existential commitment to something that might not exist but that um, that you because it's in your heart, because it's in your character, that you you know that you wish with all your your might that you could you know be a better person. That there was a you know better opportunities for yourself or you know that. But I like what you you discussed about your hierarchy of values because as people you know they evolve, they they make choices. Um, you know, like they looked at the future, they look at their past. Um, you know that those that that hierarchy is subject to complete to to changing rather mm -hmm. radically you mm -hmm. know and you hope that it does because when you start out you don't want to end with the same hierarchy no. of values that you you started with but it's a you know it's a painful process mm -hmm. you know you look at these um look all the all the leftists who have dropped out of the you know the snowflake um kind of hysteria that's hit the the u.s um you know at, at one point their you know their values were you know social justice for everyone just complete you know freedom to do whatever you want and you know but they then they see what they see what it looks like and they see that there's something wrong with it and then now they have to question their values and their hierarchy of values undergoes a kind of a change and if they're willing to go through the disintegration process and to reevaluate what their motivation was because it's always like we said it's always emotional 
But then when you incorporate new information, you reorganize it. You know, it's it's not like these, uh, you know, every liberal who ever wanted, um, you know, a better world was a complete snowflake hysteria idiot. But there's plenty of them out there right now who they think that they want that, but they've been programmed to think that they want that. And they're, they just are, you know, morally, uh, just, just fundamentally immoral at this point. To, if they, you know, if they're still continuing to go along with that playbook, but yes, yeah, so your hierarchy is subject to change, and that's, I think, that's one of the fundamental aspects of of what you, as a person, when you read this book and you look at the, you know, the history of of life and how it struggled to evolve and survive, and then you look at the human dimension and you see that there's something else. There's something extra there. You know, you see like Michelangelo, you see people who have made history, um, and you see them motivated by the same kind, similar kinds of emotions. But then when you look at someone, um, like, you know, like a, uh, like Stalin versus someone who, you know, is a similar, like a, you know, a general or something, but they're motivated by a different quality of, of a similar kind of emotion. You know, somebody in, you know, the Russian foreign ministry or someone in the Russian military who is today, who is motivated to, by, you know, just hard qualities of of militaristic you know values and virtues but has such a heightened uh, an understanding of the pain and the and the history of their people that they are a qualitatively different type of of russian than what the Rus same russian generals were you know 60 70 years ago they're maybe their own parents or whatever that you see that this evolution proceeds on like a different on a different level similar but we obviously Obviously, we have the the capability to um, to completely wipe our own race out <laughs> uh, fundamentally, or to um, or to learn and to strive towards that future that we were talking about that possibly doesn't exist. You know, there's not going to be a utopia. There's not going to be um, you know some big. Uh, party where everybody's saved and everybody's happy and everybody's well-fed because that's just not how the world works. And he even talks about that in the book, that every group is always going to strive to protect its own interests. There's always going to be conflict and there's always going to be um, fundamental homeostatic imperatives that separate our us from them. And so, you know, you there's not going to be the the big happy ending, but you know, while we still have time, why not use it, you know, striving to live, you know, and to at least send that signal out there that, you know, we'll still evolve, you know, there's still a chance for, you know, for me or you to choose and make the, and to craft your own, um, your own inner, inner world, which I, which is actually another thing that I thought about while I was reading that is the interesting difference between this, the mental representation that he has in the book about you have the external world um, and you can make images of it and you have the inter internal world and then you have feelings that you know that go along with you know your that tell you what your gut feels like or that tells you like what society is like but then there's also that third element where it's where you are you know you're consciously forging you know you can sit and you can consciously forge think with a hammer and choose mm -hmm. based on your own values and create and craft that kind of a that your own personal understanding yeah. of the two, and and that's what I take inspiration from, Corey. I mean, uh, you know, when, when you said all that, I was thinking in particular 
it's people like Jordan Peterson. It's people like uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin, who, by by their own inner work, development of the intellect, uh, making the distinctions uh, between what's what's right and wrong, um, establishing their values based on data, on facts, on on hard thinking. Uh, these people are, in effect, creating a a, a kind of a, a a true or a better or a higher homeostatic um, response to uh, American imperialism, to the SJW movement. So it's very it's very interesting uh, because Damasio mentions at one point in the book that in spite of all the information that that everyone is um, privy to in, in Western civilization, in particular. Uh, they're the most ha- unhappiest that they've ever been. Uh, they're depressed. They're they're entitled. They're you know n- narcissistic. They're self-absorbed, um, and and it's you know it, it's up to it's up to us as individuals, as you as you were saying, Harrison, to take on this uh, this burden, this cross of um, correcting it, if only in in developing oneself. Uh, and being an example in, in the best ways that one has in them uh, to other people um, and, and provide an inspiration in, in some way or another. So, yeah. Well, and that comes, what you guys have just been talking about comes back to this idea of narrative or story. The way that Damasio introduces it is in the discussion of images and how through the creation, through the emergence of the ability to create images in one's mind through having a nervous system, the the immediate next step or even a parallel process is the is the ability to string those together in narratives, um, in a story, and um, that is applicable at all levels. This is actually this again comes back to Whitehead. It's why Whitehead called his philosophy process philosophy. Because life, the universe, is about change. And not just change, not just going from one state to the other and back and forth between the two, not just the same state over and over, which would be um, just stag, just, um, well, just the same thing over and over. So it's not stagnation, it's not the same thing over and over, and it's not just random change um, back and forth between any number of states. It is a process that has certain regularities um, it is uh, certain regularities at all levels, but which introduces novelty too. So part, so that was an integral part of his philosophy in order to account for not only the regularities of nature, but also the the directionality of nature and the source of the novelty in um, in that direction and in that process of reality. So at the very fundamental level, at the most fundamental level, he breaks it down into terms of. We'll get. I'll use the words again: subjectivity and objectivity. So we'd say there's a physical pole and a mental pole to every event, to, and an event is just the the inst like the instant of experience, basically, at every level. So this would apply to a as much to a proton as it would to a human being, a human mind. Is that there is an objective state where you um, where you as a physical body as a physical thing experience the causation experience the physical reality of the objects acting on yourself and of your own self 
like from one instant to the next, your physical body at one instant is influencing your physical body at the next instant. And there is a continuity between all of those progressions. But in each of those instants, there is um, like immediately following or maybe parallel to or maybe at, like intermingling with, there is the mental pole, which, which introduces the, the final causation. A final causation is the introduction of um, of a goal-oriented self-determination or self-creation. So this is where the mind, in this instantaneous self that's pr that you know we don't have conscious access to on certain levels, though on others we do. We experience our physical body, ex experience all the feelings within our physical body, all of that carried over from all the past and from all of the world around us, from our entire sphere of experience. So we have, we basically form this instantaneous but projected into the past picture of reality, of ourselves, the world, and our place in the world, and the relation between all of those bits. Now that will, from that, there are several possible futures, which we also have access to, which enter into our mental pole, our, our you know, our, our mind. So okay, based on, this, um, based on this given situation, based upon this immediate context, what are my possibilities, and what will be the possibility that, we, that I then instantiate, that I then bring into reality? That is self-causation. Now that, and then that is brought into reality, and that could be as simple as, okay, what direction am I going to move my arm? I have different possibilities, like my arm is in this position at this instant, my goal, which is in a story form, right? It is in the future. It was here. It is here now. And I want it to be here, there in the future. But I want it to be there in the future in a meaningful way. I want to do something specific with it. Okay, well, I'm going to throw this ball that's in my hand and hopefully, um, you know, throw a strike and win this baseball game or something like that. And so it gets put into a context, not only in that instant, but in the context of past, present, and future, which is part of an overall narrative, an overall story, and that is part of an even grander story, and it's all connected. And like the entire universe is connected that way. Like um, the entire universe goes towards producing the instant in which we find ourselves at the present moment. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's absolutely fascinating. And I, I was thinking, just to go back what you talked about at the very beginning of the show, in terms of life, and it's why it doesn't matter. Like, life doesn't matter to the physical universe. Mm -hmm. Well, in that first moment when life first appeared, there was a completely new dimension of the universe. Mm -hmm. A completely new dimension. Mm -hmm. And then, as it evolved, and then we, be and we got... Uh, nervous systems. Then a new, another new dimension appeared, and this in this dimension you could inhabit consciously. And now we're in this. Now we're in these dimensions that, like you, like we're saying, like we've been discussing, that this is a place that is. It's dependent on the physical world. It's dependent on all the the other you know dimensions that came before it. It's mm -hmm. it dependent on food. Yeah. Dependent on cellular life. It's dependent on you know the the physical universe and the laws of the universe. But like we're talking about with this narratives and these mental images that are like the basic building blocks of the mind. It's this whole new frontier, really. You know, and you know, this as new agey as that sounds. But just in terms the of new looking frontier. Yes, it's this dun, this dun, important dun. frontier that um that you know, I just I just wanted to read this quote really quick. It's it's uh, from Ivan Pavlov. We discussed him a little bit on a previous show. And he has uh, 
you know, when he was in his early 30s, he was coming out of college and he was struggling to become a scientist. And he was, uh, he was suffering from all of the, the maladies of living under the, uh, Russia as it was going through its revolutionary kind of sp uh, spasms before it became the Soviet Union. And he, while he was engaging in scientific research, he realized that while engaging in such research, if he replaced this, uh, what he called the fading overseer of youthful excitation, the authority of direct sensations, with a new source of self-control, conscious systematized behavior, then he realized that true human happiness is guaranteed only to those who understand that they have to undertake this task in timely fashion and devote to it all their time and effort. It is as if nature teases the young, excites their taste for the joys of life, opens the door and reveals the interesting, alluring kingdom of thought, but into this kingdom enters only the person who, entranced by its appearance, undertakes serious and difficult work in order to make oneself worthy of it. So, you know, with the dawn of the mind came this whole new adventure, this whole new challenge that, you know, humanity has been undertaking, you know, since, you know, we first were able to paint on cave walls, you know, and it's, um, to me, that seems... Uh, like the like a very poignant way of looking at it, you know. Well, w one of the words that Damasio uses in his book over and over again is multidimensional. Uh, so w what he seems to be suggesting is we we can't just think on uh, on on the basic level of homeostasis. We have to be thinking about higher values. That's what he points to at the end of the book when when he mentions education a couple of times, and. Um, it, it just seems to me as though, even if he's not stating it ex explicitly, that he is affirming or trying to affirm uh, higher values uh, throughout the book mm -hmm. uh, and, and accepting how, how it is we exist on, on so many levels. And really, I mean, I, I, th this, was a, this was a huge appreciation, um, or I had a huge appreciation of this, it reminded me of all types of uh, physical experiences that I've had in my life that I, that, um, that I wasn't as attentive to. Uh, a little earlier in the show, Harrison, you mentioned um, how the stomach is, is, was considered the second brain. Mm -hmm. even the though first brain. But even though, right, it's the first brain. It's the, it's the older, more uh, quote-unquote primitive brain. Uh, how many times have, has my stomach told me something mm -hmm. uh, that, that has turned out to be correct? That had I consciously uh, acknowledged and and um, given heed to, uh, would have put me in a better place in the future. How many times has my chest been on fire? Uh, I mean, <laughs> not so many times, but the impressions were 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 so incredible and distinct. This was this was my my body my body acting as a brain in a way that I've never been. Uh, instructed to to think about in that way before, um, so I, I found a lot of value in, in the book yeah. there, and just acknowledging how uh, we as physical um, beings uh, don't and should not only be in our heads all the time. Uh, we've you know we've heard recently on the health and wellness show about the the, the neurofeedback technology that that's come into being, and about all sorts of therapies that. Um, remind us to be inside of our bodies, to be embodied, uh, because our, our bodies think, our bodies sense in, in ways that we, we don't acknowledge, that mm -hmm. we give short, mm -hmm. uh, short 
shrift to. Um, so those are just some other thoughts that I had on uh, when, I, when I was reading this book. Well, we're almost coming to the end of the show. Maybe I, I just want to give a few thoughts to kind of wrap up, taking off on what you just said there. Because um, earlier I, I said that uh, maybe a, a slight criticism of this model is that it stays on the level of biology and, and society and doesn't account for that third factor. But I'm kind of revising the way I'm thinking about that because um, I was thinking something very similar to, the, to what you just said, like as you were saying it. I was planning on saying something and then and you said that and just and kind of gave me the last jigsaw piece puzzle to kind of hopefully put it together. And that is that even if like homeostasis on those levels is not enough, that there is still potentially, let's say, a higher homeostasis that then is what gives us the the sense of what the right choice will be. Yes. Right? So we have these, we have access now to, or we potentially we have access to new and higher values. Well, how do we feel, how do we experience that? It's still a feeling of inner homeostasis. Now, except it's not tied to just the survival of the body, it's tied to something different. So we can be in a situation where our body might be at risk, but our inner homeostasis, like our higher homeostasis, is telling us like the the right direction to take, and that might just be it's just a conflict of values, but on on different levels, right? And just a very basic example might be a situation where you're presented with the choice of food and you're starving, or making the right choice and maybe saving someone else's lives or saving millions of lives, right? And putting yourself on the line and making a self sacrifice. That's just a really simple um, example of a a conflict between levels of levels of value, which are then experienced as levels of homeostasis. Because you can be feeling hungry, you can be feeling hungry enough that, you'll, that like, you, you, will, you, you can potentially kill to get food, right? And kill a human, you're that hungry. And that, I mean, how many times has that happened in history? Just, it, that's what history is, <laughs> is uh, um, people killing each other for food. It happens all the time whenever there's a famine. Um, but what we have is this well, the the way in which that the way in which that comes into being is through our bodies, in some way. There's a feeling that is associated with it, and that feeling is rooted and grounded in the body. And this leads me to one final kind of philosophical point, which comes back to the what we've brought up several times over the previous weeks, and that is the source of values. It's like, well, so what is the source of this? Well, I want to read just one last little tiny bit from the book, and then I'll expand on it. Damasio writes, The mental movable something that yielded complex cultural developments also included the startling realization that on occasion, no antecedent to pain or pleasure could be identified. No explanation could be found at all. There simply being pain, at pain or pleasure without any reason for either being apparent, just mystery. The resulting powerlessness and even despair are also likely to, to have been a sustained driving force behind human endeavors and have had a hand in arriving at and developing notions such as transcendence. In spite of the extraordinary triumphs of science, so much mystery remains that those forces are still durably at play in most world cultures. So this is a question. It's like, if, if everything is rooted in homeostasis, what about the, the intimations that we get of the higher, of the mysterious, of the transcendent, that seem to have no relation to just the physical state of our bodies and, and, and the state of our bodies in relation to other physical objects? What is the source of that? 
well, this comes back to, to Whitehead's mental pole. It's like, well, it's through our mind that we have access to this, to basically, you could call it the mind of God, to this, to th this mysterious source of value and information. And it's through that that we, that we, uh, that we connect with the values and that, that ideal future. And it's that part of the, of the story, right? It's the, it's the source of novelty and it's the source of the new, it's the source of the plot twist of life where, where something new gets brought into existence and that new thing creates something new and better out of what ha has existed before. This is how good is, is brought out of, this is how evil can be transformed into good. How an evil situation um, through the, through the like the mysteries of the intricacies of the of the human mind, but also the the mysterious source of transcendence. How that how how that can look at that situation and see this is and say this is a terrible situation. It's like what can be done in this situation to turn it around, to to create something good out of it. There's always there's always a, a better step from that state of evil that can be brought into the world, and when that happens something new is created out of the old and this is the this is the 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 foundational story of of existence and that's it comes down to this the the poles of dabrowski and, and the process is that there is something there is a state of affairs that's that state of affairs can be categorized in various different ways there is the there is then the phase where that state of affairs is analyzed categorized um felt sensed, you know, experienced, and the future is then created out of that present and brought into existence. And that is the, the like, just in a very, like, micro, microsphere in a, in a in micro-encapsulation, that, that is that story. It's like the, the present, the introduction of novelty, and the new creation. And the new creation is what we are here to bring about in our own lives and collectively. And that would, you know, that brings religious language into it because relig only religious language can, in, can encapsulate the, the feeling that goes along with that, the feeling of the, the, the good future, the, 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 you know, the kingdom of God, the, the ideal future. Um, and not, when I say ideal, not utopian, ideal in the sense of the best possible future created out of the present conditions. It can't be erased. We can't erase the, the who we are, where we are, and the conditions that we are in. The new future has to be created out of these conditions mm -hmm. and taking all of those conditions into account. And that is what will give rise to the new creation. So we should all be engaging in that process to the best of our abilities. At all times. I like it. Well, with that, um, I guess we'll end the show. We just want to thank everybody for tuning in again this week and wish you luck on that journey through the battle of good and evil. <laughs> um, tune in next week when we'll be uh, discussing, hopefully we'll be discussing a little bit of the intricacies of the criminal mind. Thank you, everybody. Take care. Thanks for listening. Bye, everyone. Have a great week.